This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Basically, I see magic as an art form rather than a science. So you get priests who like astrology, but who don't approve of talismans, or you get priests who are well in favour of talismans, but don't like astrology. Talking to Liz Williams today about her new book, Miracles of Our Own Making, A History of Paganism, uh, which is indeed, it's a, it is, that's what it is. It's a history of paganism. Liz, thank you for joining us on the book podcast. A pleasure. Thank you for having me on here. Now, as well as being a, a, a novelist and uh, holding a PhD in the philosophy of science, um, uh, you're also a practicing pagan. And I, I want to call you a witch as well, but you have a, pre- a preferred term for that, don't you? Um, yes, I, I, I'm quite happy to be referred to as a witch, actually, because I do practice um, what is known as contemporary witchcraft. Um, but in addition to that, um, witches, um, as a term, can be a little bit narrow. So I tend to use the term practicing British occultist, um, since I have an interest in the occult, since I do practice that. And um, since it tends to be sort of based in uh, the practices of um, British magic. So I tend to use that as a slightly wider umbrella term. Now, the book is a history of paganism. Can I can I establish to the beginning? Is paganism a religion? Um, essentially, it's an umbrella term for a kind of number of religions, a number of spiritual paths. Um, so, one of the original meanings of the term was paganus, a country dweller. It comes from the Latin, uh, so it doesn't really have that much to do with religion. But over the years, it's kind of come to mean a a, a sort of an umbrella term for a whole range of religions who worship more than one deity. So if you think of paganism as not being monotheistic, that's probably a good clue. And um, a friend of mine actually attended a Hindu temple in London for a while, and uh, because he is white, they asked him what he was doing there, and he said that he was a pagan. And they said, well, what do pagans believe in then? He said, well, we believe in lots of gods and goddesses. And they replied, oh, that's unusual, so do we. Um, so we must be pagans too. And they got on very well. So it is really a term for um, nature-based religions and religions that have a wide pantheon. Are people going to mix this up with um, witchcraft and uh, wicca? And you use the, uh, the term cunning folk a lot. Um, can we uh, tease those out and separate them? Yes, it, it is very, very complicated, and I'm not surprised that people become confused because it is actually inherently confusing. So witchcraft is the practice of magic, and you can talk about witchcraft happening in a wide variety of cultural contexts and settings. You can talk about African witchcraft, for example. You can talk about Russian witchcraft. You can certainly talk about British medieval witchcraft. And it's just the practice of a certain type of magic. Now, these days, it has changed from its older meaning um, in a British context, because when people were accused of being witches in medieval and um, the in medieval times in the few hundred years leading on from that, when we have what uh, we call the witch trials, for example, um, then what people actually were referring to uh, was a type of magic that did harm. So it was cursing magic. It was magic that... Um, was negative. It was magic that caused harm to other people. Now, today, we don't necessarily see witchcraft as being harmful. We see it as being a spiritual path in its own right. Um, But the differentiation between witches and cunning folk, cunning men, cunning women, were that um, in the 
theology and the, some of the legal codes, actually, I think, of the time, cunning folk were seen as protecting ordinary citizens from negative magic. So if you had a curse placed on you by a witch, the cunning person would be able to remove that curse. And they didn't practice cursing themselves. Their magic was seen as more positive. Um, it was a service industry, as I've said elsewhere. It was devoted to healing, finding lost objects, protecting people from um, negative magic and from harm, and a variety of other um, things like um, fortune-telling and prediction. So you have there a difference between the older definition of witches and cunning folk. Nowadays, witchcraft is seen much more as the sort of cunning-type magic. It's seen as positive. A lot of it's devoted towards healing, towards spiritual development. It differs from Wicca in that Wicca starts technically in the 1950s and is seen as the religious arm of witchcraft. It's not maybe based so much on spell work. It's based on the idea of a god and a goddess whom you actually worship and to whom you do rituals. But Wicca is the modern one and much narrower. Witchcraft is a wider term. And as we've seen, you can use that in a variety of contexts, really. We'll come back to Wicca in a minute, um, you, because I want to follow up this uh, notion of the cunning folk. You make it clear in the book that, um, to to a large extent, the, the, the functions of cunning folk has, has sort of disappeared. They, their, their functions have been taken over by other agencies. Yes, uh, you find cunning folk in every aspect of history. The, the same sort of functions uh, will be found in all cultures, all historical periods, all societies. The Egyptians, for example, in ancient times had um, magical practitioners who would do much the same thing as the medieval cunning person in um, England, for example. Now, the methodology changes and the theology behind it is different, but the actual purpose of the magic is the same. It's to attract a lover. It's to find something that's lost. It's to divine the future. Uh, it's to heal somebody who's sick. And there are a whole sort of range of things that um, that fall under this, this magical remit. Now, we need to remember that in, say, medieval England, you didn't have the NHS. Medicine was not really very well understood. Um, I've actually just coincidentally been listening to something about um, one of my ancestors, Edward Jenner, the man who um, developed the smallpox vaccine through cowpox. Now, that's quite late in the day. You know, prior to that, some of these diseases would have just run rife throughout the society, like the Black Death. And one of the only ways that you could possibly counteract it was through herbalism or through magic. Nowadays, of course, once we've got through the Victorian period, the Victorians, with their great talent for innovation, start bringing things increasingly under the role of the authorities. So we have a police force. And if you lose something, you know, if you think it's been stolen, not if you just mislay it, obviously, they will help you find it. They'll help, help you track down the perpetrator. If you're ill, you go and see a doctor or a chemist or a nurse. And these methods, it has to be said, are much more reliable than magic. You know, if I um, <laughs> feel that I'm under the weather, you know, I don't do a spell. I go to the doctor or I go to Boots um, or I look up the scientific causes of my malaise online. You know, so there are many, many things that magic, as a kind of a last resort, was roped in to counteract and solve in previous years. But nowadays, that's not so common. So really, the role of magic these days um, is twofold. It's to predict the future, because despite the rise of the futurologist, we've never really found a good way of doing that. 
and it's to attract love. I think the the bulk of the magic that people are asked to do in this country relates to love and relates to cursing. And you're you're um, asked for love uh, charms as, yes. as well, aren't yes, you? Yes, we are. You, uh, still, yes, we are, and um, it's a it's a measure of desperation. <laughs> and really, um, I have to say that I spend a very great deal of my time in in that sort of sector of my work, talking people out of doing the spell to get their boyfriend back, because usually. Either they've split up for a reason, he's left because, you know, it's, it's always a he, unfortunately. You sometimes get this with gay men, but mainly I'm afraid it's women. And um, sometimes the boyfriend is just a psychopath. You don't want him back. <laughs> you know, so I go through all this and say, really, really, you know, working on yourself, going to see a psychologist or a therapist is actually much a much better way of addressing your relationship issues than going to a practicing magician. How effective do you find the, the magic? Does it work for you? Um, yes, it does. It's it's. There's a huge issue, and I have addressed this in a series of articles for The Guardian some years ago, as to whether this is an actual non-scientific and non-scientifically amenable and accessible um, form of cause and effect, or whether it's the perception of coincidence. And that's a really, or whether it's something else, whether it's an act of imagination, like an art form towards the narrative that is your life. Now, that's a really big question, uh, which is a fascinating question, actually. We possibly don't have time to go into it too much today, but I think it's well worth bearing in mind that there are a number of reasons why people perceive magic as working. Um, And some of them aren't naivete and gullibility. They are slightly less obvious ways of, of apprehending um, the world in reality. Well, of co- and of course, it it, it can be uh, performative. And I am I'm well known to be a a, a dry as dust skeptic. I <laughs> I make Richard Dawkins look like the Dalai Lama. Right. But I can see how even if I don't believe in uh, the practice of magic, the practitioner does. Yeah. And there is a performative element to that. That where as as far as people believe in it, yes, then it will have an effect. Yes, I mean there is also the possibility of a placebo effect. Um, you know, and we see that with things like homeopathy, which I have found for myself to be very, very effective. And I can't rationally believe in this. You know, I do take a scientific approach to medicine. There's absolutely no reason um, why. Excuse me. If you can hear a funny noise in the background, it is the dog. <laughs> will you excuse me one moment? Yes, of course. While I throw, I'll just throw something at the dog. Dog, will you stop it? <laughs> a large dog and noisy. So... Um, uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's probably a more like a placebo effect um, in some cases, I suspect, than anything else. Um, but it does definitely have a feature of the performative about it. And there are some examples of um, cunning people. Many of these were just sort of people who had ordinary jobs as well. I mean, they were sailors, they were merchants, they were um, publicans quite often. You know, publicans get to hear all sorts of stuff. It's quite a good job to have if you're a magician and you keep your ear to the ground. Uh, being cynical. Um, but some of these people really played up to the idea of the popular magical practitioner, and they would have a crystal ball. You would enter a dark room. The man would be dressed in robes with mystical, mystical sigils all over them, that sort of thing. So there is a setup um, of entering into a kind of theatrical space, I think. 
This is a fantastically uh, sensible book because, of course, it is a history uh, as much as anything else, as well as a discussion of the of, of the nature of these matters. Uh, it's also a very entertaining book. And one of the things I liked about it is that you make clear that magic is not necessarily um, a, 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 an ancient thing. We, we tend to look back to the ancients because we always think that they knew stuff that we didn't. Um, and yet um, the, the magic of, of Wicca was developed by a man called Gerald Gardner um, only in the last century or the century before. Hang on, where are we? We're all losing track of time these days. <laughs> yes. So um, tell, tell me about him and, and why is it that magic can, can be generated, why, uh, um, you know, as it were, um, spontaneously by somebody who is, who is uh, on the spot within recent memory? Well, he's a fascinating man, Gerald Gardner. I mean, when you go back through the history of magic, uh, a definite personality type begins to emerge. And I would say that regrettably, an awful lot of these people are probably somewhere on the sociopathic spectrum uh, because they have certain characteristics. They're immensely charismatic. They're usually highly intelligent. Their morality and ethics are, to say the least, uh, ever so slightly lacking. Um, Alex Sanders is one of these people. Alistair Crowley is one of these people. Um, Gurdjieff is, Madame Blavatsky is. There's a whole range of people um, whom really you're fascinated to read about, but you wouldn't necessarily want to know. Um, Gardner's not quite in that sort of category because he did have quite a strong set of ethics, um, but he did have a sense of the mischievous and he was playful and creative. I mean, we're talking about a retired tea planter, you know, absolutely a figure of the British establishment. He'd been out in Malaysia, I think, for quite a long time. Um, conducting his trade, and he retired back to the New Forest, which is when he started becoming interest in, interested in um, British folklore, British magic, and met a group whom he says he believed were an ancient coven who had been going for you know perhaps hundreds of years. Now, I don't think he did. So I think he was either, as, um, as a good friend of mine says, colouring things bright, which is a much more polite form of saying making stuff up. And, um, or he was just being creative and telling a story that he thought would be compelling. Or he was being mischievous. It's really hard to know. It's possible he actually believed that somebody had told him that they had been going for hundreds of years. But I really don't think he was told that because we know some of the people he was um, associating with. And they were very much pillars of the local community. They were involved in um, theatrical groups and amateur dramatics. And several of them had been affiliated with the great big um, Victorian engine of, of magical practice, the Golden Dawn. So the magic wasn't really folklore, although I think they did take some stuff from local folklore and mixed and matched a bit. But the engine of Wicca is really the Golden Dawn and prior to that Masonic practice, because Gardner was a Mason too, and Rosicrucianism. So no, he didn't really stumble across um, an ancient coven who had been practicing a pagan religion in the New Forest for for generations? I, I really don't believe that, and I don't think he believed it either. Well, I think he was being a little bit naughty. So, something that you make uh, that you you sort of cleared up for me, which uh, I, I mean, I, I'd always been uh, a little unhappy about, is of course m for for pagans, magic isn't tied to particular deities, um, which is why it's possible to have different traditions and different sources but for it still to be meaningful uh, for pagans magic isn't necessarily a religious thing is it no it isn't no it's not necessary to believe in a god or a goddess at all um wiccans generally do a lot of druids don't 
Um, some quite a lot of witches don't, and occultists um, very often do not. They see it as um, you know something that um, is a kind of creative experimental act, and it's not necessary to tie it into um, any form of religion actually. Um, and in fact, some occultists I would say are quite opposed to the idea of a, a religion. They don't like the idea of sort of bending the knee to a higher force, and um, they would rather you know take that sort of very individualistic approach towards it. Another thing that you cleared up um, is that um, we, we always had the sense that Christianity was the implacable enemy of magic and paganism and, and witchcraft. And, and you argue for a, a reversal of, of the popular assumptions and that uh, Christianity sat actually quite comfortably with paganism um, in, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, why, uh, why are we wrong about that? Well, it's, um, I would uh, issue a small correction in that it didn't sit comfortably with paganism, but it did sit comfortably with magic, because we need to tease out um, the distinction between magical practice and paganism. So paganism in this country dies out um, round about the sort of Saxon and Viking periods. Britain becomes Christianized, and quite why that was remains to be seen. There are lots and lots of um, historical uh, surmises about why Britain changed from being a pagan country to being a Christian country, but it did change. And some of those practices probably just kind of got subsumed into the early church because when we have things like um, the Saxon, some of the Saxon charms, if you look at them in the original Anglo-Saxon, they call upon the gods like Odin and Loki and Thor. And if you look at them a few hundred years later, it's the same wording, but the Holy Spirit Jesus and Mary. Yeah. So, you know, people basically just think, oh, that's that's nice or that worked or my granddad did that, but he was some mad old pagan, so I'm not going to do that because we're all Christian now. So we just change the words. You know, it doesn't really matter. They're all the same gods in a way. They're all the same thing. So it was much more flexible about taking magic on. And say about the sort of 12 or 1300s, a lot of the time, if you wanted actually what we would consider to be spell work, undertaking you would go to your local priest and he would do something for you it might be couched as praying and it might be couched as speaking to the saints rather than to a pagan deity in fact it certainly wouldn't be speaking to a pagan deity but that is nonetheless what he would do and th this isn't a sort of uniform block because a lot of clerics disapproved and um, some of them disapproved of some things and not of others so you get priests who like astrology but who don't approve of talismans, or you get priests who are well in favour of talismans but don't like astrology, for example. So it's um, very much individualistic, and it's not really until the Reformation, when the Puritans start sort of cracking down on the whole lot, seeing Catholicism as almost worse than witchcraft. Well, of course, the, Catholics, of the Catholics still practice yeah. magic, don't they? They, they uh, speak a magic spell over a, a wafer and turn it into the, into the body of a dead rabbi. So, I mean, it's, it's not like magic has disappeared from uh, well, mainstream I mean, and, and a lot of, a lot of the um, a lot of prayers to the saints uh, really resemble spells. And when you start looking at things like voodoo and hoodoo and the use of folk saints who aren't necessarily sanctioned by the Vatican but I think they're still very much within the Catholic tradition. Uh, that is absolutely straightforward magic, very definitely. Uh, but it's, it's the Puritans who really kind of put the mockers on practicing magic. Um, and they see it as all superstition. You know, a lot of Catholicism is superstition, magic is superstition. Um, but when we look at some of the Pendle witches, um, Alice Nutter, 
for example. It's a very unfortunate name. Um, I think Terry Pratchett used it. Yes, but she did. was um, a, quite a respectable. She wasn't some mad old hag. She was some, uh, you know, really quite respectable landowner. Had a row with the, the magistrate next door who coveted her lands, and um, couldn't explain where she was on a crucial evening. And he basically put it that she was at some kind of satanic coven ceremony but she wouldn't say where she was and she was probably a catholic recusant and was at a mass but the mass would have been illegal and she didn't say so because she would have been dropping her fellow members of her congregation in it um, and she paid the ultimate price which was death but she wasn't a witch almost certainly some strands of magic are more popular now than other ones um which are they, and why is it that some have uh, fallen out of favour? So it's definitely fortune-telling. Um, you know, nobody can reliably predict the future. I am also a science fiction writer. Science fiction writers are terrible at predicting the future. Uh, you know, we don't seem to sort of take on th well, things like miniaturisation, for example. Um, and everybody on a personal basis, some people really don't know what's going to happen and say that it will just worry them. But some people are actually quite keen to know what's going to come down the pike. And so tarot reading is very popular. Astrology remains very popular. And sometimes it's just a fun pastime. And sometimes when people get a bit desperate, they do place a lot of store in it. Um, you know, if I have a tarot client, they're going to be one of two types of people. They're either on holiday and they want a reading done because they think it's, it's interesting and it's fun. They've never had one before, perhaps. Um, or they are actually desperate. They need to know what, where's my health going to go? Where's my relationship going to go? Um, you know, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get another job? All of those sorts of things. So fortune telling is a big one. Uh, love magic, as we've discussed, is another big one. Uh, and there are, in other traditions, um, Gerald Garner actually did a really good job of putting the lid on all this in Wicca uh, by essentially taking from, I think, Robert Cochran, the idea that um, that there would be a threefold return on your evil act. So if you curse somebody, under wicker. It's supposed to come back to you three times. Now, this is manifestly, obviously not the case, because otherwise, terrible people in this world would be having dreadful things happen to them. And they usually don't, unfortunately. Source of great gall to me, but they're there <laughs> again, you know, not fair. And, um, and so the but the threefold law was taken very seriously by a lot of Wiccans and still is. So they don't do the sort of cursing type magic. They generally don't go around putting curses on people, which is a good thing. It's basically a civilised form of behaviour not to do that kind of stuff. Um, but other traditions, not so much. So if you go to a hoodoo practitioner or a candomblé practitioner, a similar type of um, magic practice in, in South America, if you go to um, witches in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia, they will put curses on people for you. And we've seen that in practice. Some of them bring it over here. There are types of Islamic magic um, in this country. People don't like talking about that, and the Islamic community keep very, very quiet about it. But sometimes it does bubble up that you can go to a particular mosque and the imam there is also essentially a magician. What sort of welcome do you get uh, from mainstream society then? I, I think I'm, I'm right in saying you live in Glastonbury, so uh, mainstream society is going to be uh, a, a little more sympathetic there and you even ran you you ran a witchcraft shop didn't you yes and i have to say i've had very very few problems from anybody um ever really about this you know you hear of shops being targeted and um by christians we we haven't been and um, we're on very good terms with the local vicar we have regular dinner dates 
and um, we get on generally well with the clergy. We've got quite a large number of clerical friends, a um, couple of friends who are involved in the Judaic faith and who are Jewish, and um, really I had very few problems. And I'm quite open about it because you can't unfortunately run a witchcraft shop and expect people not to notice. So um, when I go out to, for example, trade shows, which we don't do so much, or science fiction conventions or uh, religious conferences, which I sometimes do, or basically writing groups, I am pretty upfront about it, but I've never had any kind of negative comeback. And I suspect that is um, largely because I hope I am well-spoken. I am definitely middle class. and I have a nasty look in my eye. And I think people just, just don't go there. You know, if I was lower class, I think I might get some comeback. If I was black, you know, different question. I think I may well get a certain amount of resistance. But in general, people are sometimes amused. Sometimes they make jokes. That's fine. Um, quite a lot of the time they're curious and they have quite interesting questions to ask. Um, but I've never, ha- I've never actually directly had a confrontation with anybody over my faith. Um, one of the things I liked about your book is the, the no-nonsense attitude to the uh, flakier varieties of magic and also that you're you're very happy with um pop expressions of magic in in the cult you know dennis wheatley and 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 harry potter and buffy the vampires there yeah brother cat even um the marvel comic universe and the da vinci code um you regard those as as legitimate um strands of of expression of, of this subculture yes i think it is basically basically i see magic as a, an art form rather than a science and I think a lot of the, um, the the material of popular culture does sort of bubble up from the unconscious, and it allows people to express their current concerns, their need for heroes, their need for saviors, their need for something um, beyond strict rationality. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think there is definitely a need for it. And um, popular culture gives it that. It's entertaining. It takes you out of the mundane world and out of the mundane reality and into another potentially more interesting reality. Um, and it's, there's a very strong emphasis in popular culture, whether it's Dennis Wheatley or whether it's Marvel Comics or whoever it is, really, that good triumphs over evil, that justice is done. Now, we know for a fact in the world that this is often not the case. But I think there is a, a desire to see that in a great many people. And so that's all a reflection of that same thing. There's also the idea of control, uh, which is that quite a lot of the time you don't have a lot of control over your life. You know, suddenly the government might impose a lockdown because there's a global yeah. pandemic. You know, where is your, who knew? Where is your control then? You know, somebody said to me, if uh, one of those awful job interviews where they say in 2015, and where do you see yourself in five years' time? You know, this wouldn't be it. Uh, this is an unusual set of circumstances. And Magic, I think, appeals to a lot of people because it's seen as giving you a tiny bit more control back over your life. That may be totally erroneous, but the desire is there. Well, I'm going to finally invite you to uh, step away from your extremely good-natured and rather sweet-natured attitude to all these things and ask you about New Age practitioners. How do pagans view the New Ages? Um, uh, Do you think they're as flaky as I do? Um, yeah, generally, p- uh, pagans tend to see New Ages as a, a, a bit fluffy, um, a bit sort of love and light and, um, you know, relying on things like the angelic powers, which if you go back to the Bible, angels are absolutely terrifying. You know, there is a reason why people fall to their knees with awe when they're confronted with these entities. And um, so I think they do see them as a little bit flaky. They also s- take a look at some of the money involved in the New Age. 
And I mean, the money side of it is absolutely phenomenal. You know, you get these Californian workshops and cults, they're charging thousands of dollars. Uh, it's a lot of money behind it. And I think the, the level of cynicism in the new age is higher. You get more cynical practitioners in the new age than you do in um, in modern paganism. Paganism doesn't have a lot of money, unfortunately, she said, generated mm. by it. And, um, you know, we'd make far more if we went to California and purported to be, I don't know, the descendants of ancient Druids who had mystical law from the island of Avalon. You know, we could probably make a fortune, but could I look myself in the mirror every morning? Probably not, actually. So, yeah, uh, there's, there's a, a definite attitude of wariness and disdain towards the new age from the pagan community. Although there are quite a lot of crossover practices, you know, like the tarot, for example, like astrology. But there are always going to be charlatans and, and, yeah. and frauds within yes. all of these traditions. And yeah. there must be in magic as well. Yes, there are some really dodgy people. Um, I, there are some dodgy people around now, and there have certainly been some dodgy people in the past. You know, as I mentioned, sociopathic spectrum. Um, quite a few uh, magical practitioners would have been very iffy, really, I think, um, verging on the criminal. Liz, thank you very much. I feel I know a little bit more than I did before I started reading the book, which is always a good thing. And I really enjoyed it. It's very entertaining and, and useful uh, advice in it as well. Um, we've been talking about Liz Williams' Miracles of Our Own Making a History of Paganism, which is published by Reaction Books at fifteen ninety nine. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you, Tim. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.